lights, camera, action. We're going to the Oscars on the Harvard Data Science Review podcast. Every year, members of the Academy of the Motion Pictures, Farts, and Sciences, 8,469 members to be exact, vote on awards honoring all aspects of movie making. And every year, the world watches, waiting to see which movie claims the top awards. I'm Liberty Vittert, feature editor of the Harvard Data Science Review, and today, along with my co-host and our editor-in-chief, Shaoli Meng, we talk with two renowned Oscar awards predictors, Boston Globe film critic and columnist Ty Burr, and Ben Zosmer, author of Oscar Metrics, the math behind the biggest night in Hollywood. We started by asking Ty, what are the biggest predictors of an Oscar win? The biggest predictors tend to be less so the Critics Awards, which come first in the cycle, and much more important are the Guild Awards and the other sort of industry awards. Once a particular performance or movie starts gaining momentum, it becomes sort of the center of attention. And momentum does shift over the long haul of an Oscar season, but when the Screen Actors Guild gives out their awards, that's a pretty good bellwether for what's going to win the, the acting awards in part because the majority of Academy members are actors. Yeah, completely agree. In terms of, you know, everything I've studied and looked at, the Guild Awards tend to be the strongest. And then some of these more general awards, you know, the Golden Globes get a lot of press. But in terms of being an Oscar predictor, they're generally somewhere in the middle of the pack. Uh, But even within the Guild Awards, you know, it can differ by category. Some of the ones that Ty was talking about, you know, Screen Actors Guild, Directors Guild, they tend to be very strong. In recent years, the Visual Effects Society, for instance, has kind of fallen off a bit of a cliff in terms of their predictive power. Uh, So it it can bounce around and it can bounce around from decade to decade where something might not be as strong for a period. And then due to voting changes or changes in the makeup of the group, it can become stronger or weaker. We might be seeing that right now with the BAFTAs. They had very significant changes in how they chose their nominees this year. And so it's going to be fascinating to watch over the next five or 10 years. Are they as aligned with the Oscars as they have been in the past? And one thing I will point out about um, the Critics Awards, which do come earlier in the cycle, they can bring in some black sheep performers and give them momentum. For instance, Paul Racy this year in the Supporting Actor category. Uh, We named him Best Supporting Actor in the Boston Society of Film Critics and the National Society of Film Critics. And then he also racked up wins in, in other Critics Awards. So he was in the game then that all of a sudden his name was being spoken of. See, this is where it's good to have Ty on here. He can talk in the first person about these Critics Circle Awards. Right. Yeah. <laughs> How much does these campaign affect voters, especially in L.A.? And I'm not talking about, you know, presidential campaign. I'm talking about, you know, the, the campaign that you really care about. From a data side, it's a tricky problem because there is a bit of chicken or egg thing going on. That A lot of times, movies that are more likely to win awards get bigger campaigns, but movies that get bigger campaigns are more likely to win awards. Uh, and so it is a little hard to know where that gets started. Intuitively, there surely must be a connection. If not, there's a whole lot of studios wasting a whole lot of money right. uh, if there's no connection between these campaigns and winning Oscars. There is more definitively a connection between winning Oscars and then going on to make more money at the box office, especially for those that are still still up and running or that make a a second run in theaters. Now, this year, I don't know what to make of that. I mean, everything's completely out of whack when it comes to box office numbers, but historically, there is that correlation. 
it's a perfect example of causation and association. Don't mix them. You know, it's the kind of lesson we tell our students. But this is a really great, great example. One thing I would point out about campaigns, I actually think the most influence a campaign has is early on when the studio is deciding what movies they're going to put money into an Oscar campaign for, what actor they're going to campaign for, in which category. Some movies you have uh, a large cast where there isn't necessarily a lead role. Who are you going to call lead? Who are you going to campaign for lead? Who are you going to campaign for supporting? Sometimes that can end up backfiring or or going in a weird way, as was the case with um, Judas and the Black Messiah this year, where everybody was expecting Daniel Kaluuya to be best supporting actor and not really talking about um, Lakeith Stanfield. He was really in the conversation for best actor, but lo and behold, they both got into the best supporting actor category, which is unexpected sort of the scales for what studios are willing to spend on a campaign? You know, we all sort of have an idea about how much political campaigns spend, but like what is sort of the range of money that is gets spent? It involves a lot of ad buys. So full page ads in Variety and Hollywood Reporter, billboards in the old days, arranging screenings in recent years, sending out screeners, DVDs, which they still do, but, you know, more and more they're sending out links. So that's, you know, obviously a very cheap way to do it. So it, it's a tough question only because not all these figures are necessarily public. There's no obligation for studios to say, well, this is how much we're spending on Nomadland, you know, when Hulu's trying to, to get that best picture when, you know, I'm curious about this question myself and looking around. And there are some at least anonymous sources from studios, so we can take it for what we will, that told Variety an article a few years back that it ranges from three to 10 million for a, a typical Oscar campaign. Now, I've got to imagine that it also varies by category. Uh, you know, if you've got a movie that, you know, take Tenet, which most of the interest in that is not because it's an awards contender. It's more because of the movie itself. And then, yes, technically it is an Oscar nominee, but not in some of the more prominent categories. I can't imagine they're particularly focused on the Oscar campaign side of things when they're pushing it. Whereas, you know, you think about the ones that are almost made for awards season, you know, Mank, that's that's begging for an awards campaign. And even for me, just driving around Los Angeles is pretty clear which movies are putting up, you know, best picture for your consideration, all those types of ads. Yeah, and with the arrival of streaming companies like Amazon and Netflix, we're seeing a new, sort of another level of campaigning because those guys have really fat war chests. I think that started with Netflix and Roma when they were really campaigned very, very hard for that movie. That's actually a perfect segue to the question I was going to ask because you mentioned streaming because these days, you know, we don't really go to the movie theaters, particularly this year. How does it change the whole process in terms of your predicting? I mean, the box office sales do matter or this is kind of irrelevant now. What's the change there? So from my end, from the the models that I run, I think any statistical model is always based on the premise, which is a flawed premise, that the best indicator of future behavior is past behavior. Because ultimately, a model is doing nothing more than simply taking a bunch of data from the past and seeing how it all relates to each other and then saying pretty boldly, well, that's exactly how I think it's going to all relate to each other in the future. And so this year, that's, of course, an absurd contention. And I'm going to mention this in the first paragraph when I put out my article that I do every year predicting the Oscars. I'm going to say, look, this is all based on data from years that are quote unquote normal. I don't know exactly what that word means, but I do know that it is not 2020 or 2021. And I think that you need to take these things with a grain of salt. Now, there are ways not to get too 
you know, nerdy about it. You can set Bayesian priors for yourself to try to estimate the idea that, okay, maybe there's more uncertainty and here's how I'm going to quantify that. But really, when you boil it down, that's not much more than saying, here's my educated guess as to how, quote unquote, weird this year is. And that's not what I like to do. I I like to leave the Oscar predictions that are based on some combination of data and intuition about film to folks like Ty Burr and the other experts in that realm. Uh, What I like to do is just put out the stuff that's purely based on data. And in the years where data might be out of whack to just admit that and say, take this with a grain of salt. Yeah. As somebody who, you know, I have worked in the field of statistics earlier in my career, but when it comes to Oscar prognostication, there really is very little predictive data that enables you to perfectly predict what's going to happen. I think the Guild Awards are probably the best barometer. Box office, I think, is not a predictor at all, especially in recent years, um, because the kind of movies that make a lot of box office are not the kind of movies, you know, increasingly that get nominated for Oscars, really since Titanic. Um, I don't know what the what the last real big box office blockbuster. Yeah, right. Beyond Lord of the Rings, you, know, you, you think right. it's hard to imagine them. It, it, you know, ironically, on that point, it's actually something that I've lucked out in in that, say hypothetically, the box office were a good predictor of the Oscars. Then suddenly, nothing's got box office figures anymore. This is 2020. This is 2021. Well, I don't know what the box office numbers were for any of these movies because they weren't at the box office. They were streaming. And the streamers don't necessarily release, you know, Amazon and Netflix aren't going to tell us the exact view counts by week. And so if the box office had been a really big predictor, my model would be up a creek because then suddenly a key data point is missing. It turns out that it's not a key data point and so full steam ahead, but that is sort of a pleasant irony of that aspect of it. We've talked a lot about sort of like what past things, and Ben, as you said, you know, this past information that predicts these future events, but what about the current interaction between different awards? So like how much would the fact that someone is going to win best actor or actress affect whether that picture could win best picture or best director? You know, how much do the awards that are currently be giving out affecting each other? From my research, they do. Not always every category to every category equally. The relationship between best picture and best makeup and hairstyling is a little tenuous, though in general, movies nominated for best picture tend to be more likely to win across the board, whether it's because more people like the movie or more people have seen the movie. But some categories are even more related than that. Not really actor, actress, and picture. People ask about that one a lot. It's not that strong. But when it comes to best picture, you know, you think about best film editing, best directing, sometimes the screenplay awards are related, but then there's others below the full. Costume design and production design tend to be a little more related than you'd expect. So yeah, there are definitely some where you can look at the whole array of nominations, not just, okay, this one has X number of nominations, but getting a little more into the weeds of which categories they're nominated in can absolutely help predict across the board. I remember when I was watching uh, the Oscars last year, Parasite racked up a number of early awards in those categories that Ben's talking about. And it was very clear to me that it was much more likely than expected going to win. To uh, follow up on Liberty's question about, you know, how the movies interact with each other, I want to bring up another kind of a new, newish, possibly the criteria, because as you know, that there is an increasing emphasis on diversity of these winners. Mm-hmm. Does that add another important predictors that in your thinking of who will be the winners? Let me let me weigh in on this. Here's my gut theory of who is going to win an Oscar. Who is going to win an Oscar is the person or film that makes the Academy voter feel best about what they do at the moment they are filling out that ballot. I think there's been such a discussion about diversity, a push for diversity in the Academy membership, which is actually, I think, having results. And a lot of voters are 
aware of that when they're filling out their ballot. I think it's, it's a factor. Because it's a factor, it's very possible that we may have the first year where all four of the acting winners are of color, which is, I think, a direct result of the, the push to both bring in younger members and a broader array of members, a broader diversity of members. Um, but it's also due to the conversation, I think. It's been really nice to see this push across the board, not just in the Academy, but from other similar organizations. Obviously, the BAFTAs this year are really mm-hmm. stepping out yep. into the forefront on this. And despite the fact that I like to sit around and play with Oscar data, this is not something mathematical. And so voters are people that are going to be voting on any number of factors. And obviously, the first and foremost is how much did they you know, approve or like the performance or you know, whatever the on-screen aspect was. But people vote for things for all sorts of reasons. And that's true in elections. And that's true at the Oscars and everything else. I don't pretend that I'm able to capture that kind of thing through data. Uh, I don't, for instance, include, you know, variables for race in the model necessarily. I mean, the recent push for diversity of the academy is so recent that it would be hard to fully capture that without knowing each individual voter, who do they vote for, what were the spreads and the margins and the final results. I'm so jealous of election forecasters who not only get polling, but they get to know not just the winner, but how much they won by. I mean, that would be amazing knowledge to have. You know, I find out who won and that's it. Right. So the only way in which I think any kind of statistical model could ever take into account something like that is simply through prior award shows. You've got to imagine that if there's some sort of sociological factor that is impacting Oscar voters, more often than not, it's probably also impacting the Golden Globe voters, the Guild Award voters, and so forth and so on. Not always, uh, whether it's because of a, a different makeup in the Academy versus another group, whether it's because of a breaking news event that happened just in time for Oscar voting, but maybe after all the prior voting. Uh, and that is one of many reasons why statistical models aren't perfect at this right. stuff. Right. I do think that the makeup of the body of voters is important. I really don't think Moonlight would have won Best Picture if they had had the same old Academy membership that they would had, even though it was just two years into the change. I wonder if uh, Parasite would have won with the older Academy membership before they, they really have been inviting large numbers of new, uh, new members in every year, younger and, and more diverse. You know, we have all of these predictors, but like, Ty, you had statistics beforehand, but now you're sort of more into this qualitative mm-hmm. view, talking mm-hmm. about the different award shows that lead to this. And Ben, you're certainly more in the statistical sense. So what would be the pitfalls that you guys see in each of the sort of the more qualitative method and the more quantitative method? Like what can one offer that the other can't? So I, I think that uh, I, I can go yeah, first on this. Is. The strengths and weaknesses on the quantitative side. Uh, I think strengths is treating every nominee equally, statistical methods tend to almost act like a machine where the same set of inputs will lead to the same set of outputs. Uh, And so sometimes, you know, humans tend to be biased by narrative or storyline. There's this idea sometimes of momentum in Oscar season that I think can be a little fuzzy, especially when, you know, people look at the awards in the order they were handed out, but not necessarily in the order they were voted upon, which Mm -hmm. is not always the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. And momentum in all sorts of other ways, you know, who they happen to know. You know, everyone in LA, it seems, might know one or two Academy members. And, you know, that's only a small fraction of the Academy, but they're going to be very biased by what those people say. I remember someone reaching out to me from the Academy my very first year doing this and saying, uh, the artist didn't have a shot because he had voted for Hugo and everybody he knew had voted for Hugo. And, you know, I'm sure that was a good sample, but not a, not a great sample. So I think the idea to sort of not be overly biased by any kind of 
narrative around any movie and just treat every movie and its data the exact same way is a huge strength. Uh, but in terms of weaknesses, there's just so much that cannot be captured by data that is so important to predicting the Oscars. A lot of this stuff surrounding uh, the narrative of the movie really does impact voters. Uh, a lot of the nuances and weirdness of the previous awards can't fully be captured. They change year to year. The categories change. The fact that we've got sound mixing and sound editing now as one category together, uh, I'll be honest, I don't know what I'm going to do with that uh, <laughs> because that, that's a weird situation. When you, you have separate sets of data, they're trying to predict two separate sets of awards, and now you have to predict this one joint award that hasn't existed for decades. Um, that, that's a strange situation in something that I think if I were able to blend in intuition and, and still, you know, do the, the gimmick that I do, uh, I would have a much better chance of predicting that correctly. Now, it turns out this year with Sound of Metal, it might be the favorite in each right. category separately. So that makes it easy if for people who are only focused on winners. For me, I'm trying to get the probability of every nominee specifically, and that's that's a harder thing to do. Data struggles with small sample sizes, and the Oscars are just this paradise of small sample sizes. And so that's another thing where as a more, you know, traditional domain expert better understand which things are real and which things are not in small samples than a computer can. Uh, so I think there's a number of pitfalls here, and that's a big part of why I would never expect to you know, go perfect in every year or anything like that. Speaking from my side of the aisle, um, well, you're absolutely right about bias and about the weakness and the way I come at it is, yeah, I do create these narratives and we buy into these narratives. And those narratives start as early as the fall festival, so it's the Toronto Film Festival, when the studios sort of trot out the movies that they're hoping will jump ahead of the pack immediately. And we start telling those narratives then and they carry through all the way and they can sometimes become deaf to what's actually going on. And as you said, you know, it's a paradise of small sample sizes, but it's also, there's so many vagaries, there's so many elements that affect what's going on, that momentum. And I do think it's not so much momentum as the discussion. This discussion sort of centers around one movie or performance, and then the next week, it, that discussion is all played out and it's moved on to something else. And as I said, I, I really do think the ones that win are the ones that are in that discussion sort of bullseye when they're filling out their ballots. So what I do, it's useful to sort of keep my ear to the ground and see what people are talking. That's actually quite helpful to go on social media or on Twitter. For instance, Nomadland has been the front runner for Best Picture for so long that I actually think it may not win because it's kind of talked out. But I could be completely wrong about that. That is a scattergram I'd like to see where you go back and look at the movies that were right out of the gate um, when they came out and that where people were saying, yeah, that's going to be the winner. Um, how did they actually do? And how was that affected by lead time? I mean, there's a lot of variables there. I would love to know the statistics and the crunching that goes into the best supporting actress category, because that is traditionally the category where there's always a surprise, where whatever you think is going to happen rarely happens. And I'm thinking the classic version, of course, is Marissa Tomei winning for My Cousin Vinny and beating out Vanessa Redgrave and Joan Plowright. And people still think that Jack Palance was drunk and read the wrong name on the card, yeah. um, <laughs> which is not true. It's, it's not, not true. true. Um, but one of the variables is that it will often, a young ingenue will come up as a winner. And so that actually, that is a predictor. But every year it kind of, the quantum molecule goes one way or the other, you know. Given all these predictions you have talked about and uh, all the messages you described, I guess some uh, listener will be asking, uh, what was the biggest shock to you? What is the predictor for unpredictability? Like something come out and say, no, that one, we cannot <laughs> touch it. 
in terms of the specific biggest shock, I mean, not, nothing could ever possibly top the La La Land Moonlight thing, not only because of the way it happened, but also the very fact that it happened. Even if they'd gotten the envelopes right, I mean, that was a huge shock. La La Land had won absolutely everything in the lead up to the Oscars that year. But certainly, I mean, that's far from the only one. I remember, you know, it wasn't as hyped at the time because it wasn't as big a category, but Ex Machina winning Best Visual Effects definitely sticks out mm-hmm. at me as one of the ones that had the lowest probability. And there's a reason why the model never spits out 0%. I mean, things with low probability do from time to time happen, uh, just as things with you know very high percentages don't always happen. For me, uh, in general, there's somewhat of a relationship between how many predictors I have at my disposal and how much I feel confident in the predictions. But the model tends to reflect that. You know, percentages should be able to get further apart from each other as there's more and more data to support the front runner over the others. Uh, so when you think about some of the down ballot categories, there's just not a lot that is a predictor for best makeup and hairstyling or best original song. And so things like that, if all of the very few predictors we have tend to line up, that's great. It's easy. And if they don't, then you, you're just going to be having sweaty palms going into Oscar night. For me, it's not so much shock as it is dismay because on Oscar night, normally I'm sitting at the Boston Globe at the offices watching TV and writing my copy for the paper and I have to write one for the early edition halfway through the show and then as soon as the show is over, I have to knock you know the final edition out. And so I, write, I pre-write a lot of it and I assumed that La La Land was going to win and I had an entire two paragraphs, you know, and then I had to rip that all up <laughs> at the last minute and completely write something different. So, yeah, I was shocked. I was also not annoyed, but like, oh, my God, I got to do some work here. <laughs> There's a real impact on you. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the year that Spotlight won was interesting because it's a, it's a story about the Boston Globe. And there I was sitting in the Boston Globe offices writing it. And it was favored to win, but I none of us were sort of putting our you know bets on it because we didn't want to jinx it. So that was a happy shock when that came in. Well, as people say, right, predictions are hard, especially if it's about the future. So now you have talked about these uh, uh, shocks, and I think uh, many listeners would be very interested to know how successful have your prediction been? Talk about your success, the, each of you. So for mine, it, it tends to vary year by year. The lowest year, I think, was one uh, where I, I typically can't predict the short film categories because uh, there's not enough data there. Uh, and so... The worst year, I think, was 12 out of 21, and the very best year was 20 out of 21. So it bounces around somewhere in there. It's generally in the the low 70s for a, a percentage is the overall average for the decade I've done this. But I will admit, from my end, I tend to look at it less as a right or wrong thing because I have a real luxury, and this is so unfair, uh, but I have a real luxury of giving probabilities for every nominee. Uh, it's a real uh, a real crutch that we statisticians like to lean on because you know it, it's so easy to say, well, it wasn't wrong. It was just an event with lower probability that occurred. (laughs) Uh, And so if you look at it less in terms of, okay, did the nominee with the highest percentage chance win? And more in terms of some sort of log loss or whatever other score you want to use to evaluate predictions. Yeah, it's the same thing. It bounces around year to year. And sometimes the movies that the math has decided, quote unquote, are more the favorites win. And sometimes more of the underdogs win. And, uh, you know, the hope is that in the long run, the model's calibrated well and your probabilities mean what you say they mean. And you go from there. Actually, I find the short film categories I'm pretty successful in because I, I make a point of watching them. In the past decade, they've actually been releasing them theatrically before the Oscars. So it's easy to see them, which wasn't true in previous years. And you can sort of go online and see how the, you know, who's talking about what. You can get a sense of which one or ones are likely to be in the sort of in the winner's circle. Where I go wrong is when I take an educated guess 
about what's going to happen and I fall flat on my face, which happens with like three or four or five categories every year. I would say that I get about 16 to 18 out of 21 right. That's been pretty consistent across uh, you know the years I've been doing this. Well, so, you know, we have to ask you, I know that you guys have not necessarily made your final predictions yet, but we have to ask you, what are your predictions for this year? Who's first, you or me? Uh, I'll go first, Ali, and then, you, and then you can, you know, say, what are you talking about? I've got my little, my, my printed out ballot here. I mean, some of them are gimmies. Like I said, Chadwick Boseman is pretty much a lock for best actor. The best actress category is a lot of talent, um, and it's, to me, it seems like it's a toss-up between Viola Davis and Carrie Mulligan. One thing I think is going to happen is that Mank, which has the most nominations, is barely going to win anything. I think it's a movie that people who really, really love classic movies love. It's very well done, but I don't think it's... It's a, it's a movie that's easy to admire, but not easy to love. And I think there are movies that are on the list that are going to have a more of an emotional grip on the voters. Nomadland, I think, still is the lead. I'm looking possibly at an upset of Trial of the Chicago 7. Um, in Best Picture. And then you have, because things like Moonlight and Parasite have won in recent years, really come out of left field. You know, maybe you can't count out Minari. Maybe you can't count out Judas and the Black Messiah, which, speaking of momentum, is a movie that sort of came out late and had people talking about it very late in the cycle. And so it might be still have some some legs in terms of the conversation. Who's going to win directing? That's a very interesting question. I think Chloe Zhao is probably going to be win it. It's the first year we've had two women nominees in that category. It's likely she's going to win, but there's always a chance that there could be an upset. Ben, what do you think? Yeah, so right. This early, the only ones where, you know, I feel like I already know who's probably going to you know, wind up as the highest probability in the model are the ones that are probably the most obvious. In terms of the ones where it's pretty clear, picture director, you can never say with best picture because it's had some out of left field results in recent years. And that's made the likelihood of the top nominee go down and down and down over the years. But I'd be very, very surprised if Nomadland is not favored uh, from my model in both of those two. So Chloe Zhao for director. Uh, Right. Actor Chadwick Boseman, supporting actor Daniel Kaluuya, supporting actress, really tough to say. Original screenplay, I would expect Promising Young Woman is probably going to be favored in that category. Soul for animated seems like it's well out in front. Some of the down-ballot ones are really tricky. Most likely Sound of Metal for Best Sound, Mank for Production Design, Nomadland for Cinematography. The others are, you know, I'm, I'm looking through them right now, and there's a whole lot where I'm saying, well, wouldn't it surprise me if my model predicts that? And wouldn't it surprise me if my model predicts that? So uh, we'll, we'll find out yeah. in a couple of weeks. I do think in the, the actress and the supporting actress, I think it's, a really interesting horse race between Glenn Close, who has been nominated seven times now um, and not one. She's closing in on Peter O'Toole's record. And Yajong Yoon for Minari, who has a, a lot of love for that performance and has picked up a lot of awards. Just one thing to throw an absolute monkey wrench into this whole discussion and throw all predictive measures out the window. I just want to tell you a quick anecdote that happened to me about 10 years ago. I was walking my dog in the woods here in Newton, Massachusetts, and I ran into a friend, and she said, hey, Ty, I'm voting for the Oscars. And I said, what? Uh, and she said, yeah, uh, one of my good friends, her mom is in the costume department. It's, it's costume year, and she's a member of the Academy. Um, but she's senile, so you know, we just take the ballot and we fill it out ourselves. <laughs> and I think that might be more common than we want to th- believe. For this issue is called a data quality. And uh, we understand how hard it is to control data quality. You know, you need to know. I always tell my students you know, how the data were collected. And 
very importantly, who actually put down the data points. So. I've heard stories of people giving it to their gardener, you know, in, in Beverly Hills. So who the heck knows? Thanks to Ty Burr, Boston Globe film critic and columnist, and to Ben Zosmer, author of Oscar Metrics, The Math Behind the Biggest Night in Hollywood. You can read Ben's article, Oscar Seasons, The Intersection of Data and the Academy Awards, on the Harvard Data Science Review website. From me, Liberty Vittert, and my co-host, Shally Meng, thanks for listening.